how do we grow, develop, change our boards. And one of the things I tell them to stop doing is don't reach out to your one black friend and say, hey, who else do you know? But what I would encourage you to do is how do you then broaden your network? Because a lot of times you struggle with that growth and development because if we don't move outside of our own circle, we don't get uncomfortable, (laughs) then we don't know what that looks like. Welcome to another edition of Be The Change Georgia podcast. Our featured guests are amongst today's most purpose-driven leaders who are proving that a stakeholder-driven economic system that cares about their people, communities, customers, and the environment, not just shareholder value, is not only the right way towards a sustainable future, but that it's also great for business. Today, Nathan Stuck sits down with Michelle Pearson Tucker, who's a proud business owner of Edward Jones Investment Branch out of Athens, Georgia, where she provides human-centered and holistic wealth strategies as a financial advisor. Michelle is a dear friend of Be Local Georgia's community and has committed her life to leading community initiatives, which includes serving on many boards, committees, and organizations. Nathan unpacks her story from her early childhood influences and what led her into an inspiring calling for modeling and teaching us what it looks like to be more intentional about diversifying our boardrooms, starting with more inclusive thinking. Take it away, Nathan. What sparked your curiosity around money and finances that led you down this path and into your field? I grew up in one of those regular families that did not have money, so much so we did not have it. I didn't even realize that we were broke. I didn't know what that looked like. I just knew I had a big family. We were always all together, but I didn't know that money was a problem. It wasn't until I was older and realized that the the traditional struggles, I had a teen mom who I was raised in the house with my grandmother and my mom's siblings. And oddly enough, next door, my other grandmother lived, which is how I got here. Hey, (laughs) because they were neighbors. But it also made for a big family um, because we were always moving across the yards to each other's houses, but not knowing that, like I said, money was an issue. And But as I also paid attention to my family who was engaged in what was happening around town, I also began to see that money seemed to be the thing that made decisions about life. And it made me more curious about what was going on. How was money moving? How does money work? And so as I went through school and college and even my master's program, I knew that money was the movement and that it drove a lot of decisions. So we would say these things, but that's not how people always moved. Even more so when we start talking about how are we responsible with the things given to us, how are we being good stewards? A lot of times we say that we're doing things around supporting and helping, but that's not what books say on a lot of companies and organizations. And so, again, it it sparked my interest even more, which led me down this path. And so I spent, oddly enough, it's been almost two decades. I'm like, how old am I? (laughs) Um, Almost two decades in the financial industry of looking at individual and corporate books and helping folks understand their money. And so being a financial advisor kind of made it like this is what I'm doing anyway. And I enjoy it. And so getting all the degrees and everything that came along with it was always interesting to me in a weird way. I'm definitely a money nerd. When you first got going in the, in the finance world, what was a big challenge that you faced or maybe something that you didn't expect to face entering that industry? I will say specifically on the financial advisor side of things, one of the challenges, because I we call it new, new in our industry, meaning no one gave me assets. I started the business kind of on my own and built my book of business. So I started new, new, very new. Um, probably the biggest challenge was the relationships and connections of people who actually had 
investable assets who had money to grow my business. For me, again, not growing up that not having a rich uncle or anybody to build that network, that was probably the biggest challenge. And I'll, I'll even also add as a caveat, it's probably a challenge for a lot of people of color for coming into this industry, because if you don't have those connections and relationships, it does make it difficult to start this business if you don't have someone giving you $5 million, $10 million to get you started in the business to help build those relationships. We came to get to know each other through the Minority Business and Nonprofit Associations. And, and I know your board history throughout Athens. I've seen your email signature with nine or 10 different <laughs> boards that, you, that you're either on or chairing. But when did you really start getting actively involved in, in what motivated you not only with the Minority Business and Nonprofit Association, but with all the boards that you're now serving? I'll talk to um, MBNA, the Minority Business Nonprofit Association, first. That passion came probably about five or six years ago when I piqued interest in trying to help small business owners, um, specifically, again, people of color. How do we get to the point of contracting as they were trying to grow and sustain these businesses that they already had? And it was a struggle. And But a lot of times what I saw was that you have all the puzzle pieces, but you just don't have them in the right place just yet. And so it became much more of a training process in helping small business owners really define their spaces and build their their true portfolio to be in the position to take on a large government contract that typically won't pay you for 30, 60, 90 days out. That just is. <laughs> and so that's where my MBA passion came from, MBA passion with how do we then help small business owners put themselves in the right position. And that has grown so much because we've also expanded that role to also take on our nonprofits because a lot of nonprofits, they, everybody nearly is, oh, I'm just going to get a grant. And I'm like, well, you can get a grant, but you don't get a grant to start the work. You get a grant to actually help excel the work that you're already doing. And if you're doing that, you need to be tracking what you're already doing. And so, so many, again, missing pieces and parts that were out there that people didn't understand. So that's how MBNA's passion grew, which is why I'm chairing it. I call it kind of my baby board um, because it's the one that I hold close to my chest. And myself and our co-founder, Keisha V. Riles, we are doing the work with our board and supporting us. My passion overall with boards probably came from, again, one of my grandmothers next door, Grandma Jean Taylor. She was notorious around town of being involved in different projects and supporting. And what does that look like? And I didn't even realize as a kid that I was kind of watching her and mimicking her in some vein. But her work and passion for always wanting to help folks apparently bore over into me. And so she is part of the reason why I'm here doing what I do around town. Athens is home for me. And so it's always when I'm working on a project and sitting on a board, I always think at some point this may help my cousin, help my brother, may help a friend, it may help the person who I grew up with down the street. And sometimes, oddly enough, I do get people saying, hey, thanks for doing such and such. I'm part of this and ha- not having an idea that it was even connected. So it is kind of warm and touching sometimes when I do find that, find that out. But I don't always know, but that's what drives me that maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to help somebody else who's not in the position where I am at the table sometimes. Another conversation, and we had this one about, oh, I don't even know, six, nine months ago, was around diversifying boards, nonprofit boards, Mm -hmm. as well as executive leadership teams. But I I know our conversation was around board diversity. And if a board, this is like most things in life, it tends to look like your network. And so if the board is primarily white, it will continue to be primarily white. So what's important for us or our listeners or anybody out there looking to kind of challenge the status quo of thinking, the status quo of board nominations, or even executive leadership team building out that leadership team. 
what should we probably stop doing, but also start doing <laughs> to truly be <laughs> inclusive and actually have that big tent that welcomes everybody in? One of the things under MBNA that we do is that board development piece, but we do it kind of in two veins. One is for the corporate space, and it's how do we grow, develop, change our boards. And one of the things I tell them to stop doing is don't reach out to your one black friend and say, hey, who else do you know? But what I would encourage you to do is how do you then broaden your network? Because a lot of times you struggle with that growth and development because if we don't move outside of our own circles, we don't get uncomfortable. <laughs> then we don't know what that looks like and we don't know what to ask, what do we need? And so doing an assessment of your board is just as important of saying what skill set do we need? It doesn't necessarily matter what color it comes in, but it does bring different perspectives when you start looking for people outside of your normal community and network. And I say that because one of the things we say in the black community is that all your skin folks ain't your kin folks. And it's just because someone looks a little bit different doesn't mean they think differently than you. And so just because it's a person of color, but if they grew up in the very, in the, you know, the same middle class background, going to predominantly white high schools, a lot of times they don't have that muscle memory of how does that look to speak out? How does that look what other black people traditionally do from a cultural standpoint? especially if they were raised somewhere that was not in the middle of the culture. And so be very cautious of that because you end up with a yes person and someone who realizes, what, well, darn, I don't look like everybody else at the table. I don't want to say anything to, to change that. And they go, sure, that works. And they start, quote unquote, speaking for black folks. And that, that can be problematic as well. On the flip side of that, when we are working on our development for individuals and how do we train them to be in those positions of sitting on a board, one of the things that we say, it's not always about how do I come in and disrupt and change? Because you, I will say probably more of my younger people, whatever the generation after millennials, whatever my young group, a lot of times that's what they automatically assume having, being, having a role on a board is. And I have to tell them a lot of times you need to understand what's happening within that board dynamic and the why. Why are you even there? Is this something you're passionate about? Do you care about? Because I've seen it time and time again. I, I, I remember one of the earlier boards I was on, I won't call their name, but I had some of my, we called, you know, the elders in the community. They were making comments of, well, gosh, they never give these particular scholarships to people of color. There are plenty of people in color who could take on those scholarships. Why are they not going out? So I finally got on the board and I had to, I sat back, I did my homework, I started paying attention, I asked for reports and you have to read the minutes, you have to know what's going on. I had to go back to my elders and say, hey, we're not even getting people of color applying for the scholarship. So how can they give someone a scholarship if no one's applying for the scholarship? And that then changed the mold. Of, so it was, how do we then actually get people to apply? And so sometimes it's those dynamics. So it can't always be the, the push and shove. It has to be the an understanding of the educational pieces. So we do a lot of that training. I will say, just for anybody listening, probably the biggest response as to why a person of color does not join the board. One, nobody ever asked me. I didn't know it existed. And the second one is I'm intimidated by the financial reports. And I had to tell them, I was like, as a person who was in finance, most people who sit on boards don't completely understand how to read those financial reports, black, white, anything. But it's a training. You have to stop and ask questions. That's the whole point of you being there. If you don't know, and sometimes boards may want to once a year or every other year, take a moment and just say, we're going to have a meeting just to talk about the financials and walk people through them. Well, I think it's important for people who serve on boards. And I mean, my first one ever was Keep Athens Beautiful. I didn't know what I was walking into. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't, again, the financial things outside of taking a finance class in college, like you're just kind of sitting there nodding along. So when I became board chair, one of the first things I did was like pause. And let's say, like, <laughs> we're just talking about these committees. You have six new board members who have no idea what we're talking about 
how we raise money, how we make money, how we spend money. Sometimes that tribal knowledge gets lost and what is very obvious to you can be intimidating and overwhelming to a new board member. Absolutely. I, I see it all the time. I've been well-versed enough in so many boards over the years that always ask, even if they don't offer, can I have the past two set of minutes, sets of minutes and financial records? I just want to see what's going on before I step in the room. But most organizations, if they don't offer you that, you don't think to ask that. It's not a natural thing to ask for. You assume whatever I need, they're going to give it to me because I'm walking in this new space. And, and part of that becomes training on the shoulders that they should make it a point to offer that and take someone aside. Almost every board that I've been chair of, I've scheduled that we have a new board member orientation. We invite the current board members, but all the new board members, we set aside a day. We're going to half day, a dinner, whatever it is. Let's run through all of those things. Let's tell you what's going on so that you, when we get into the board meeting, you're somewhat up to speed. And we have a notebook that we give you as well with all that information in there so you have it. My other little trick that I do is December. Again, most of the boards I chair, we don't meet in December. And so we'll use December as the new board orientation. And then either right after that, we'll do like a holiday gathering if you want to get everybody else together to, so they can also meet people. It's a little trick because people expect to do things for the holidays. So after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, take advantage of that window. <laughs> yeah. And I think it helps break down some of the, when you get there, I remember the sense of clickiness. Mm-hmm. Of everybody knew each other and you're kind of the outsider. And, and I can only imagine, too, if you're one of, you know, two or three people of color on that board, it's going to be even more intimidating to be kind of sitting there like, how do I fit in? Where do yep. I go? Who do I talk to? We got to know each other and we've talked about this a little bit, but it came up. I want to say it, it came up in a diversity, equity, inclusion conversation, but I was brought in because of the B Corp side of things and kind of the framework around B Corps and trying to build better companies, build a more equitable version of capitalism. You're speaking at our event in March. You've done some pay equity analyses through the MBNA for people looking for B Corp certification. So what is it about that community that's drawn you in and kept you plugged in? The B community is so intertwined in so many different areas of how do we make things better. And so the eyes that I would say the B community is looking through is How do we improve on? How do we sustain? What does that look like? And so that's intriguing to me because I didn't realize it for years. So that's the one thing, especially probably the first big takeaway I took from you is like, oh, that's exactly kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing at some point. Because it's how do we sustain this thing? How do we make it better? And when I look at it from the DEI lens, I think that's where we have so much space and growth for the DEI community to come in because it's a space that's almost forgotten sometimes. But it also brings that piece of knowledge because If we've always looked at the same thing, we get in the habit of doing the same thing. And it's like, well, one of one of the pastors, I think it was Pastor Haynes, did a sermon. And part of that was the worst invention for the black church was the copy machine is because we'll pick up. We pick up the program from last year and say, let's just do it again. It seemed to have worked. And well, Sister Susan has passed away, so we're going to cross her name out and put somebody else there. But we're going to do the same thing. Right. And and I start seeing that that same thing happening in corporations, right? <laughs> and I think that's where B Corp comes in because, and it says, we've been doing the same thing, but we can do it and why not do it better and actually help and protect and sustain and save all those things. And so when I look at it from a DEI space, for me, that's where I'm also seeing what, hey, you will have that different piece of knowledge, that glimmer of something different because you have a whole group who's doing things culturally different that will fit into that. But we didn't even know because nobody decided to talk to them because They haven't been at a dinner party before and we've never invited them because I don't have any black friends. So here we are. And so I think for me, that's where I think the local B community can then say, how do we do this thing different? 
And if we start including everybody, we'll get so many ideas of how it can be different, but still accomplish the same work. I always say intent versus impact. And I don't think the intention of a lot of these business owners is to create companies that show an incredible lack of diversity. It's, it's just that the impact is that. And a mm-hmm. lot of them, it is, it's they don't know what they don't know and things that become obvious to people that live in this space. Like, well, if you're recruiting from the same school and you're getting the same lack of diversity, why don't you recruit from another school <laughs> or at another school or those types of things? You don't hold judgment. You're here to help and to guide and to, and to educate and to make help companies become better versions. I will tell you part of the reason I do not judge on that is because I also think that culturally we do the same thing. The only difference is that we have to go into another space. Just because when you think about who is typically the owners of businesses and hiring, while yes, we're starting to see diversity within the entrepreneurship space, but collectively at a large scale level, we start looking at corporations, we start looking at you know educational institutions, all these places. It's majority white people. And so we had to have gone. We've also, the term that we always use is code switch. We've had to do that from the beginning. You were trained almost and and not even knowing. And I can't even blame like my parents or grandparents. It wasn't purposely training me to do that, but you knew this is how you act here. This is what you say here. And so you learn those things and you code switch automatically. I mean, even in the same breath that we can be talking and me and a black girl, we're having a conversation. Hey, girl, hey. And we're really all in the conversation. And then Nathan wants to like, oh, hi, Nathan, how are you? And it's totally different. And then you go back, but well, girl, yeah, let me finish telling you about last. And, and it goes, it's our norm. <laughs> it really happens just that fluidly. And, and so we have to figure that out. And we have these sidebar conversations like, I don't know why we're still doing this. They could do better if we do blah, 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 blah. But nobody ever says it out loud because you don't want to be the person who's different. And so it's also, again, training us to be comfortable in that space to do that and say that. Again, I think we're seeing more of it. I don't think we have always been positioned in those leadership roles, though, to do that. No, that's it's beautiful. And it's what I mean, it's definitely what gives me hope, too, is that the, the attention hasn't waned. It continues. Even if it's that little ripple that you're out there changing the world, what's giving you your hope right now? I would definitely agree that part of it is that ripple at me tossing the rock at the pebble. I'm definitely the person who's always throwing rocks. I don't have my hand. I say, I threw the rock at you. I'm that person. <laughs> but the fact <laughs> that that ripple goes out and I'm like, and people are saying that, yeah, it had an impact on things they did. I even had, I, I hired a teller almost two decades ago, probably about 15 years ago at least. And I got a phone call from them actually over the holidays. And they were just saying, I saw this thing you did on social media. I was following. I just want to say thank you. Do you realize you gave me my first professional job? And I had to stop. And I was like, oh, wow. And I'm thinking this kid, and I say a kid, but he's a grown man now. But he is now working on getting his certification in, in public accounting. So he's becoming a CPA. And I'm thinking, wow, I remember he worked at Pilgrim's Pride. And I remember work, he worked at Kmart. Like, I can remember his resume. And he was in sales at Kmart and Pilgrim's Pride. And he was like, I just had no hope, faith that I would ever get out of that block. But that's all he knew. So my ripple, like you said, that is definitely what kind of keeps me going. Um, Like I said, knowing how the impacts that I can hopefully have on, I I say Athens, but I'm seeing it even more and more across the state because he didn't even live here anymore. But I'm seeing it more and more across the state as I make friends that have just kind of blossomed out and grown to other spaces. It's, It's the ripple that I know that our purpose in life is not to be here for me. It's what can I do to impact the lives of others? And so that is why that's, that's, that's what makes me tick. <laughs> What's the one big takeaway you want listeners to get from this episode? Change. That's probably my, my single word for it. I, again, I think, about, I think back on the work that we continue to do with 
MBNA. And, and I'll do the quick plug. You can find us at the mbna.org, the mbna.org. But the thing that we spend a lot of time on is how do we change good or bad, right or wrong, up and down. But we have those very open, honest conversations about what's the next thing, whether it's change within your corporate organization or your small mom and pop, whether it's a change on your board or changing your mindset of how you view and the intimidation factor of it. It is change and change is okay. I think of anything we've learned <laughs> in the pandemic is that change is inevitable, whether you like it or not. And so we embrace change and we figure out if this is going to be the new thing, then how do I then grow and blossom through it? And so change uh, and be open to it and don't be afraid of people. <laughs> I went to a PWI, a primary white institution. I went there with my grandmother saying, why are you going to school with all those white folks having cousins that I went to, you know, Albany State and paying college the years before me? I said, well, Grandma, who do you think I'm going to work with when I leave? So I, I understood what that looked right? That was my first time being sassy with her, and I said it from a distance. And, but I really meant it. I really didn't. I was like, but Grandma, for me, it wasn't about I'm going to this new unknown place. It was that I know how to be around black people. I know how to be around white people. Why are you afraid for me? Hindsight, because KKK had a meeting right down the street, and we got a little one call to stay in our dorms during that time. So I understood hindsight, I understood what she was worried about. But for me, it allowed the change and all the things within me to grow and develop, but to build relationships with people that I probably would have never met had I not gone to that school. Some of my best friends are still to this day that I still hang out with and time with from that school. And so why not? Change is going to be the thing that will save us all, but we have to change and adapt. Besides the mbna.org, how else can our listeners get in touch with you? Probably the, the best email address because it is connected to my phone is sustainmbna at gmail.com. We do have a corporate one, but this is the one that I keep up with, <laughs> the sustainmbna at gmail.com. And don't forget, she's also available for financial advising. Thank you again for mm -hmm. joining us. I'm glad to have you in the B Corp space, helping me, guiding me, being a friend to me and just kind of the overall community and all the work you're doing for the greater Georgia business community, but also with us. Michelle, thank you again. It was lovely having you. It's always fun. And like I say on most of these, because I know all my, my guests, I'm just <laughs> glad we got to let everybody else be a fly on the wall for the conversation. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. I've, I've enjoyed it and I can't wait to see where our journey takes us next. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another edition of Be The Change Georgia. We're so thankful for you being a part of this purpose-driven leadership community and would be grateful if you went on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and tapped the number of stars you felt this show deserves. This helps us continually improve the content and get it out to more aspiring B Corp leaders to grow the movement of using business and leadership as a force for good. Remember, making a profit and making a difference aren't mutually exclusive ideas in business, and we encourage you to plug into this community to learn how you can do both as a 21st century leader by visiting BeLocalGeorgia.com and following the Be Local Georgia pages on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. We have some exciting programming coming up soon with events and more inspiring networking opportunities that you won't want to miss. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from our executive producer and production team at Chat with Leaders Media. If you're looking to launch your own podcast for your business in the industry you serve, go to chatwithleaders.com. Now go enjoy your day and be a leader worth following.